0: Hello, and welcome to the So, You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm, but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life scuba for beginners to get your copy and get diving already. marinebio.life scuba for beginners. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what kind of math does a mermaid use? Algebra. Why did the two cows not like each other? They had beef. Emily Velasquez is a student who currently lives in Mozambique. Though a newcomer to the country, she's followed her curiosity to help answer some of the most pressing questions that this region and the world face. From mangrove reforestation to using red algae and cattle feed to reduce methane emissions, Emily's projects and goals are wide-ranging with positive, long-lasting implications. What I love about Emily is her positive attitude, curiosity, and willingness to see things through. Please enjoy. Emily, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm excited to chat with you today.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited to be on. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. So for you, what got you interested in marine science in the first place?
1: Well, it's really a lot of things. We moved and still moving around a lot growing up because my dad worked in the port industry. And so we always had to live near the water. And from there I grew up always in the ocean and, and I loved it and I was fascinated by it. And I would try to, you know, learn more about it some way or another, whether it was on a Girl Scout camp or something else and when I first moved to Mozambique is when I really really got in head deep into marine science research just because you have such a vast coastline 1,000 no it's 2,000 some over 2,000 kilometers of just pure coastline and all of this coastline ocean there's a lot of research that needs to be done to learn more about conservation if And the species and there's not a lot there so that's really what got me started marine science
0: yeah so it's a fascination so it's just kind of being in and around the water was there like a particular instance that you're just like this is it this is what I want to study
1: well I guess it would be the first time I went diving and I went with my dad and we were getting our open water certification and we were just surrounded by all these fish on my first dive and these gorgeous colorful corals i was really fortunate to be able to get my diver certification in in mozambique in d'Oro. and i mean that was just like wow it's all coming together and i want to protect these species i want to learn more about them and I want to see you know maybe there are solutions for more more problems in the world that are coming from the ocean, and so I loved it, yeah, yeah,
0: and this is what kind of prompted you to reach out to me was like you took this big look at the problems in the world, right, and you're like, what can I do about it, which I just love that mentality, right like, what can I do? How can I make it better can you know what can I do? What can I control so your solution was to dive more into it and to really kind of look at some of the species and what's going on around you. So, and I want to get into the red algae that you've been studying a little bit, but was this like your first project with it or did, were there other like smaller projects that you kind of started tiptoeing your way into the marine science realm with?
1: Well, I would say my very first was like the replanting mangroves that I used to do when I lived in Ecuador. So restoring mangrove forests that were, you know, needed to move because there's like a project going on. And so I absolutely loved that. And so when it came to doing some research on for a school assignment, I got to choose free chance, whatever you want to do, go for it. So I looked into mangrove restoration programs and I wanted to learn what was, you know, the best method for restoring mangroves and conserving these areas. So I looked at three different areas, three different countries part of the world with similar dissimilar or same species as the ones that exist in Mozambique and kind of same hydrological topographical characteristics and looked okay, so was there a mangrove restoration program over here? Kind of what approach did they take? Uh, was it successful? Was it not? Because I think it's really important to learn from your mistakes or learn from other people's mistakes so you don't make them on your own. In fact, that's something my grandpa told me, was smart person learns from their own mistakes, but a wise person learns from other people's mistakes. And that's kind of where this all started. So I was researching manga restoration programs in different parts of Mozambique, and I was kind of curious why they failed. And why so many people told me, oh, this coastline used to be full of mangroves, and now there are none. So I want to know what happened. And that was the very first thing. And the second after that was when I was going to school, and I noticed this bubbly, stinky, green muck on top of the waterway next to my school, and I had I didn't know what it was. And I decided to research about it and it turns out it was eutrophication. And eutrophication has similar ingredients to agricultural fertilizers, so that's phosphorus and nitrogen and then started building biofertilizer. So, yes, there were little projects.
0: <laughs> so, I'm really curious, what did you find With the mangroves in Mozambique, like they, you mentioned there's a huge coastline and there's no mangroves left. What happened?
1: Well, what I learned was very interesting. I wanted to find out firstly, why in this Maputo region where there, a depletion of mangroves when there wasn't. So I found one of the things with, when it comes to research in Mozambique is a lot of this stuff is outdated. I'm looking through research that's really, really old from like the 1990s and nothing has been done since. So what I did see was uh, maybe about 10 kilometers north of where I live in Maputo, there was this huge area of mangroves a couple years ago. And then for aquaculture, for shrimp farming, it was completely, you know, torn out everything and even if you look google maps the area it shows like just blank nothing because the project fell through it didn't work out but now almost naturally the process these mangroves have restored themselves and so a lot of it is anthropogenic problems coming and so the locals use the mangrove wood to they use lacalacas to build their houses for firewood, and they'll uh, aquaculture. So they'll cut them all down. They don't really know why mangroves are so important, and they'll start depleting them or cutting them for fruit or fish. And so that's one of the biggest problems. So that's why they were being depleted, using for their wood.
0: Interesting. Okay, so it was wood and also abandoned shrimp farms
1: yeah so being used for aquaculture in the country, but then the project's just falling through. So you're left with dead plants and not a profit from your from your work. so
0: yeah, that's interesting because you hear about that with aquaculture in the mangroves going on in like South America, I think specifically like Brazil. and I haven't really heard about it like in Africa, you know, other places. I mean, mangroves are worldwide, right? So it's just, it's not something that has really cropped up and it kind of alludes to your point of, there's just not a lot of research done in Mozambique. There's some, like we've had, we've had, we've had people on the show from Mozambique like love our oceans and they're doing amazing like whale research and stuff like that. But you're right. Like that's one small organization.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Francisca, she's, she's amazing. I I reached out to her a while ago and, they work with the marine science students at the university to teach them to get their diverse certification and once again improve the marine science education in Mozambique. But on a really good and positive note is the recent studies show that the mangroves have repopulated. There are more than there used to be a couple years ago, and that's because with the UN sustainability goals, one of Mozambique's environmental ministries, they said our goal was to plant I'm not sure exactly how many square kilometers of mangroves, but it was a pretty ambitious goal, and they ended up like doubling this goal and restoring the mangroves up north where you have a lot of cyclones that come and completely wipe out entire communities. And so they uh, marine science researchers have been going up there and teaching the slow process, but In the long run, it's really beneficial. So there has been restoration, which is great.
0: That is cool. So there's two things with the cyclones. One, they can actually help with seed dispersal. We have hurricanes here, right? That's what we call them. So they actually can help with seed dispersal. And mangroves, you know what? I don't know what species of mangrove they're using, but we have red mangroves here. Well, we have three. We have red, black, and white. And the red mangroves are like prolific seed producers, and they just... It looks like a pen. We call them sea pens sometimes. Pencils or mermaid pencils for fun for the kids, and they float around in the water, and they can float for up to a year before they actually like need to take root and grow a tree. So they're really prolific producers. So once you actually have like a cluster of them, I can imagine between like wind and currents, it would actually flow and help establish mangrove populations all up and down the coastline. Eventually, you know, nature prevails. Like if we give it a chance, nature can correct itself and will correct itself. So it's really cool. My question with the community, though, so, is that so cyclones are coming through and, and wiping them out, which I mean, it, it unfortunately it does happen. It happens in the Caribbean. I mean, it just happened here in Florida. Like we had a category five hurricane came and wiped down a whole town. So with that, the people there's marine science researchers going in and kind of educating people at the importance of mangroves so they are not building with the mangroves. Like, I was just trying to tie that in.
1: So, one of the researchers, his name is Henrique Ramos, I believe. Specifically, his first name starts with Henrique. And he's a marine scientist, and he works with Salomar Bandeda, who's a marine science ecologist. And, yes, one of the things that I've read and heard about is he's gone up there and worked with one of the local indigenous communities. But it's the method to restoration. So, almost could you say like a permaculture approach or a way of where you're not just doing monoculture monoculture just like throwing these species of mangroves that maybe weren't there before or you're integrating it with the surrounding species so it's sustainable it works in harmony and they you know grow successfully and so that's what they've been reading that's what he's been doing.
0: Cool.
1: So when you're
0: reaching out to people or when you're doing your research, you know, it sounds like you're, it's a combination of like papers and like actually reaching out to people. What are some of the organizations that you've that you've been working with, that you've been, you know, getting your information from?
1: I have been working with, well, my teachers will tell you, I usually send out a lot of emails, but regarding the Spirogoptis Taxiformis, I've reached out to Jennifer Smith, who's a professor at UC San Diego and who's doing this research over there for just general knowledge on the area. And then I've reached out to Sea Expert. And so they are the company that are harvesting asparagopsis because it grows quite abundantly in Los Azores. I've reached out to, I work a lot with Jennifer Keeping, who's a marine scientist at all of Africa, in Tofu, and she's doing some incredible research on small eyed stingrays and just general research on everything because there's so much to know. I mean, Mozambique has the largest congregation of whale sharks in the world, and we still don't know a lot about them. So I have worked with USAID and the World Bank regarding the biofertilizer research, I've reached out to Ostera, who's a startup, for also the biofertilizer research So, And then professors at UH Manoa regarding bio outfall monitoring. Oh, and local researchers, too, at the Maputo Special Reserve.
0: Lots of emails. Lots of cold emails.
1: Yes. Lots of emails. Lots of phone calls. Lots of interviews.
0: So... With you reaching out to all these organizations, I really love that you took the initiative. So for listeners, Emily's in high school, and she's just following her curiosity, and the internet can be a wonderful tool to finding out almost anything, or at least connecting to people who can tell you the answers to the things that you want to know, right? So I love that you're taking this initiative and reaching out to people that you don't know, don't really have any connections with, you're just following that initial curiosity and learning more. So I think that is really incredible. I want to chat about, and this is the project that you initially reached out to me for—is with this red algae, so *Sparagopsis taxiformis*. And you say it so quickly, so I'm like, "She's she says this a lot." Um, <laughs> so, why why *Sparagopsis*? What made you kind of look into this more? What what fueled that curiosity?
1: Well, I was doing some. I would, okay, I guess I would say it would be daily or weekly research on like scientific publications, what's going on, is there new information, and actually, I might have just been looking at universities to apply to, and UC San Diego is one of them, and I saw Professor Jennifer Smith, I read about Asperogopsis taxiformis, I did some more research, And I thought, wow, this is incredible. Seaweed that cows can eat and it reduces their methane emissions. This is going to solve the world, which I, you know, I've learned that you always need to criticize and look at things from a critical angle. So before, after that, you know, wow, this is amazing. I would like to, okay, we need to learn more about this because this seems too good to be true.
0: So for listeners that may not know, why why were, why would asparagopsis be, be the answer to cow emissions, right? So there's lots of studies that come out that say beef, cows are a huge, enormous contributor to global warming, right? Whether it's cow, whichever end it comes out of, different people are saying different things. It was the back end, now people are saying, no, it's the burps. So whatever it is. It's the methane from cows that are causing most global warming. So people need to stop eating cows. And there's been research done. I mean, you're seeing it like a little bit in Mozambique. I've definitely heard of it in California. I've seen studies in Denmark that are looking at if you feed the cows seaweed, it reduces these methane emissions. So this is kind of what you found and got really excited about it, right? Because like, it's just so nice to just have a quick, simple answer like that. And then you reached out, reached out to me and I um, pointed out a little, you know, the other side, can, a little bit of, yeah, just looking at things with different angles. And I'd like for you to share your side of like, you know, after our initial conversation, what you found, and then we can kind of chat a little bit more about the overall concept of it.
1: Okay, so for listeners, if you... A little bit about the process of how scientists are saying it reduces methane emissions is this seaweed has a bioactive compound known as bromoform. And it's only, you know, found in this red seaweed, not really in any other red seaweed. And so that's why it's so special. So when you feed it, the cow consumes it, it uh, it suppresses the enzyme uh, that triggers the production of methane in the cows. And so that's how it stops it what i learned and what i've heard from other people as well is that when it comes to if this is going to be main scale mass produced large scale there's a lot of cows there's a lot of industrial in this seaweed needs to be you know cultivated in laboratories cuz there's just not that much of this out in the world so Scientists are trying to find the way, all right. So, we need laboratories and we need land and we need money and we need water and we need all these resources in order to cultivate the seaweed for the demand of all these industrial meat farms. And when it comes to all of this land and resources, there is one study that says it just equalizes. And so, do you're going to do all this work? to produce it but is it as environmentally friendly and so is the seaweed that you're giving the cows actually going to make a large difference when all the resources and time and energy that you're using to produce it you know is also contributing to our global warming problem
0: so you learn that there's different sides to the story there's you know it's wonderful when there's just when it appears to be like this silver bullet answer but it's usually not the case. There's usually multifacets to it. So and it and it was an edification for me too. So I think it's really wonderful that they, you know, they figured out a way to reduce the methane by, you know, this one specific enzyme in this red algae. However, when you look at the root source of the problem, it's not necessarily the cows, <laughs> the cows being there. It's it's actually what they're eating. So Ruminants have been on the earth for ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And it hasn't really been a problem until we've industrialized and commercialized things. And, uh, you know, what are we feeding them, right? Are we feeding them corn? Well, that's not really part of their diet. And, you know, when you eat things that don't agree with your stomach, you get gassy too. So is that really part? Is that more of the contributor than anything else? Cows are meant to graze. They're meant to graze on the on the land. Eat the grass. They have what three stomachs, four stomachs to process all of that, and then their excrement is fertilizer, and it fertilizes the grass that they go back and eat, and it's just this beautiful cycle. So it's balanced. We have to find that balance of industrialized commercialization. Just. It has not ever been the answer. I just keep finding that anytime man tries to outsmart nature, it just doesn't work. And sometimes it takes a while for for that to like really come into fruition. And sometimes it's immediate. But usually when a man tries to think that it knows better than nature, it just doesn't work. So I think the solution is to work more with nature in whatever capacity that is, you know, can these farms, industrial farms like Shift? Can they go to grass fed cows and, you know, feed the cows what they're meant to, let them be free range, you know, like, and these are also like animal rights issues as well, but getting into that aspect of it, which we don't really need to. But for like the environmental aspect of it, yeah, industrial commercialized projects are just not great for the environment. And that even goes for cultivating the seaweed to feed these cows that are fed commercial feed, right? So if you are going to do this on a huge scale, now you have a laboratory, okay, well, you have to build a laboratory. It's a huge, you know, if you want to do this on a massive industrial scale, that's a huge warehouse and building and that's finding the land and, you know, removing any resources that might be there and then using resources to buy it and then water to filter it and, you know, light and, all of these things. And now you have shipping, you know, it's all the cows aren't like right outside the door. So now you have shipping costs associated with it, whether it's trucking it to a place or shipping it across the world, which your dad <laughs> would probably know way more about than me. Um, and he was well, probably by osmosis living in the same house as him. So anyway, so there's just more to it. And I really like that you took that initial feedback and you're like, and got curious with it. So A couple things I'm curious about. You mentioned you're you're still researching the red algae, Paropsis taxiformis, which I think is really fun and like trying to quantify it. And I think that has value, whether or not it's for your initial application of like trying to save the world from methane emissions from bovines, or if it's just you know, part of your own curiosity and your own research, because you have this fascination with the Mozambique coastline, right? Like you got there and you're like, what is this place? And like what how can I learn more? So I think what you're doing has value, absolutely. So I'm curious, you know, what you've done actually on the field with your research and, you know, what the what the red algae has told you.
1: I will get into that, but to add to what you said earlier, because I think it's worth worth saying, is I've, I've spoke about this with other people, too, is industrial meat farming, it's terrible. And it, it's not good for the environment, but the thing is, it does feed a lot of people. And it's not going anywhere anytime soon, especially, I think, in South Africa, in Namibia, where you have a lot of hungry people, and they're going to do what they need to do to feed all these people. And that's where I see even small-scale cultivation of the seaweed in laboratories being beneficial. Even if you don't make a large, massive, even if you don't have such a massive audience to give it to, it could still be, you know, beneficial somehow in helping the environment and seeing what it could be just because... It's sad and it hurts to say this, but it's not going anywhere. About what I found uh, regarding the seaweed here so i have uh, looked at different methodologies to measure abundance of biological compounds so how was what was the best way to measure the abundance of the seaweed and i use quadrat sampling so i've gone to two locations in mozambique and i've chosen these locations based off previous studies that i found of where they typically find the seaweed its type of intertidal zone, its depth, maybe if it has strong wave action, where it could be. And so this is where I've chosen these two zones. And I was able to successfully find it, which I thought it was going to be a very long shot if I was going to find it or not. But considering that Mozambique is subtropical waters, I did it. I found uh, using quadrant sampling, I found it to be quite abundant in... A shallow intertidal zone, but not at a invasive, as invasive as it could be in like Los Azores or in other parts of the Mediterranean. And when I, I actually went diving for it and I went to this reef called Three Sisters Reef and with my quadrant sampling and all my gear. And luckily a biologist from Portugal who knows all about Asparagostus taxiformis was on the dive and was able to help me identify and make it sure it was the seaweed that I found. And so at depths of about 18 meters, we found it. The surge was quite strong. So that, again, that correlates with research that says, oh, it enjoys strong wave action. And we found it, but in very small quantities. So my quadra is about a meter by a meter, and it filled probably two squares. So I don't have the exact numbers right here with me right now. But the goal, right, is to find where else it could exist along the coast of Mozambique and maybe in other areas. It's more abundant. And what is its you know, role in the ecosystem and, and learn more about the sea Yeah.
0: So it's native. Is it native there? You sounded invasive just now.
1: So not invasive. Because it's in very small quantities. So, no. The thing is, there's no research. I'm the very first person to conduct research on the seaweed here. And so, it's kind of been this big leap of faith. Learning all about it and trying to work with other people to learn more.
0: (laughs) You mentioned earlier that there were people elsewhere, and maybe it wasn't in Mozambique. maybe it was just somewhere else in Africa that were actually like wild harvesting the seaweed for use. Could you chat a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So I actually it was just on a call with the the owner, uh Henrique from Los Azores, and their company Sea Expert. They have a lot of Asparagopsis taxiformis all over these very small island in the middle of the Atlantic. Uh, where conditions aren't fantastic. Those are backwards. And so they cultivate it, harvest it. They have certain areas along the island where they know it grows more abundantly and they do it in sustainable ways and they work with lots of marine scientists. And that goes to export for pharmaceutical companies and cosmetics and for testing. So some of their product goes to universities doing research on its methane-reducing properties. Yes, but he did mention that invasive species come, it's called rugulopertivish okamure, and it's a seaweed that has come within the year and completely taken over the island. And that can be a problem to their business because it's taking up a lot of space and kind of taking out the asparagopsis because it's taking all the space where you can grow it. So,
0: interesting. Does he know where it's coming from or why?
1: They believe it came from a ship from Japan.
0: Hmm, it's ballast waters providing all sorts of <laughs> it's like the, the quintessential example in the United States of invasives like the zebra mussel in the great lakes is like the epitome, right? Like it came from ballast waters. It's not native. And it just is like annihilating the great lakes. It just totally took over. So, yeah. Interesting. So moving forward, what do you hope to accomplish with your research and you know, where do you want to go with it?
1: Well, I would really like to be able to publish my findings and, Learn where else it exists along the coast. And what I'm actually working on doing is creating a mathematical statistical model to help me predict where the seaweed could exist along the coastline according to topography characteristics and hydrology and trying to find patterns about where this seaweed grows and, and why. And I think that if we can show the Mozambican government that. Marine research is very beneficial because it can turn to profits. And kind of, as we talked about earlier, it's it's always all about money. And if we can show them the great potential that research and conserving or conservation of these vast coastlines that they have, that they need protecting from the illegal fisheries Yes, I think it would be quite beneficial. So that's where I hope to go with it and encourage more research to, you know, be produced. I mean, even if this seaweed doesn't go into be mass-produced in laboratories and exported through meat industrial farmers, right? I think it's just important to know, hey, this exists here and it's very important to these other species, and we need to conserve this area or protect it so some people don't just come in and start, I don't know, picking the seaweed or exploiting this area. So research needs to be done because who knows, maybe a few years from now, another student like me needs to know a paper about abundance and something i found is that measuring abundance is not very popular or like a specific, like quantitative abundance of a species. So my research is even harder when trying to compare it to other abundances across the world.
0: Yeah, I think there's lots of challenges associated with and I like that you're trying to create like a mathematical model to to actually measure your findings because like we mentioned earlier, you know, wind, tide, big weather events, these all impact abundance. You know, eutrophication, anthropological inputs, all of these things impact seaweeds. So, you know, what you see one year could be completely different the following year. And then, or maybe it's cyclical, right? Every five, 10 years, you have a bloom, you know, similarly in every three to six years, there's just a complete dormancy, you know, you just, I think that's the problem with abundance. It's hard. It's an abundance of input.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah.
0: So I'm curious, actually, with your mathematical model, how are you going about creating this?
1: So it has been quite the journey because there's a lot of different ways you can approach it. And at the same time, there are very few ways you can approach it. So I've been looking at using the Bayesian theorem, which is a statistical kind of equation Used to estimate the probability of something happening, so the probability that the seaweed could go along the coastline, and that is a valid method of doing it. I spoke with some data scientists in Cape Town about it, but I don't have enough data. Is the problem? So you need a lot, a lot of data, and for you know it to be valid, you you really can only go about this using you know, statistics.
0: Yeah. Do you have a strategy going forward of how you're going to your data collection?
1: Yes, it would be find more ways, different ways to quantify um, abundance and considering what variables do I want to include in the mathematical model? Because with the ocean, there are so many factors that contribute. So, Considering the main factors. And for me, I think that would be topography regarding maybe like intertidal zones and where else they could exist along the coastline, and then targeting these areas and maybe certain depths. I think concerning depth, that's very important to know. And just collecting more data, that's my plan. But I do have school, and as I mentioned earlier, Mozambique has a very large long coastline so many hours out on the road driving which my kind parents are quite busy so they can't always do that i also plan to learn more about the growth cycle here specifically so i can do that in one specific area Uh, just continue going back to one place and i've been working with the marine science researchers in tofu so hey guys are you seeing it here how are you measuring it and looking at other ways scientific ways to measure abundance
0: that may actually be a really cool citizen science project for you to work on as well because you're only one person and even if you get a team of people it's an enormous coastline and there's one of the reasons why citizen science exists is because people are out and uh, like see things and can report back, right? So if you could set up trainings through local through dive shops in the area, right? Can they train their people to know what to look for? So they can identify it and you know, maybe not bring quadrats out, you might have to come up with a different way to quantify what they're seeing that's a little bit more accessible and understandable for laymen for people that are just out diving. But that might be a way for you to just be able to get more data and where it is and without having to go there and be there yourself in the water.
1: Thank you. That's a fantastic idea. I think, I think I will follow through with that.
0: (laughs) I'm glad I could help.
1: (laughs) Yes. Thank you. See all the help we can get.
0: That's right. That's right. That's right. Awesome. All right. Well, at the end of each episode, I have a series of questions I like to ask. Are you ready? I'm ready. What is your favorite sea creature, and why?
1: My favorite sea creature is the humpback whale because I had a quite up close experience with the humpback whale before. So I think they're gorgeous and very resilient creatures. Their migration that they do from well the southern hemisphere. Humpback whales versus, you know, the northern hemisphere humpback whales, but their migration is incredible. They are enormous, and they fascinate me.
0: Yeah, yeah. You want to tell your the story of your interaction with them?
1: Okay, so this is what happened. I was on a class trip to Tofu It was during the whale season, so October or September, September. August, June, July. That's when these Southern Hemisphere humpback whales are coming up here to mate and have their babies. They like the warm tropical weather. So we went out to go look for these humpback whales and whale sharks and dolphins. And we saw some. So we, we were with our snorkel gear and we hopped out of the boat. And then they kind of all disappeared. We didn't see any of them. So The rest of my classmates, they didn't really like being in the water. So they (laughs) quickly ran back into the boat or swam back into the boat. And I was still out in the water with my teacher. And all of a sudden, I look down and I see this huge congregation, all these dolphins swimming beneath me. And its I'm fascinated. I'm like, wow, and they're swimming and they're dancing and it's beautiful. And then I kind of hear my teacher saying, watch out, watch out. And I turned to my right, and there's a humpback whale, less than an arm's length away from me, just swimming right next to me. And I couldn't even swim away, because if I kicked, I would have kicked the humpback whale. And so I had to use my arms because I did not want to hurt the whale. I wanted to maintain my, you know, safe distance. I didn't, had no idea it came that close to me, so I swam away. My friends thought I was going to be swallowed by the whale. But I thought it was an incredible experience. I could see its eye just staring at me, probably not staring at me, but looking, <laughs> looking in the direction and
0: trying to figure you out.
1: <laughs> exactly. I was like, it got pretty close to me.
0: Oh, that's incredible. That's so cool. What a cool story.
1: Yeah, and then a couple months later, I was going diving and two humpback whales swam over us.
0: Oh wow. Are there just that many humpback whales there or are they just are you attracting them?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There are a lot of humpback whales in Mozambique. Uh, A lot of tourists come out to see them, especially during whale season. They're everywhere. You can see them jumping out of the water and performing, you could say.
0: That's really cool. What a special place. What a great story. Thank you.
1: What does the ocean mean to you? The ocean means peace. It means peace to me. It also means less adventure and exploring i mean when you're when you're in the ocean you're just surrounded by all this blue water and it's really is an entirely different world with all the fish and the corals and it's it's very peaceful to me i always feel at ease when i'm you know relying on a tank for oxygen (laughs) staring at all these beautiful animals and i mean i think it's amazing too because we are alive because of the oceans.
0: I love it. If you were given a blank check unlimited funding for any project or projects up to 3, what would you use the money for?
1: Well, I would definitely use the money to encourage more marine science research here in Mozambique to pursue my own research regarding biofertilizers from wastewater treatment centers and research to understanding the bay here, which a lot of people rely on for fish. And we want to make sure this bay is healthy. There are not a lot of chemicals running in, but I have this dream and this is where this check would really go to. And it would be to go to Venezuela and which is where my father's from and do All this marine science research there because of the dangerous political system that's been going on, situation, a lot of the science research has been put on hold. And I would love to go to Los Roques and to these beautiful areas and learn more about it. We conserve it. Yeah. That's
0: wonderful. What is your favorite field story or stories? And I feel like I may have extracted it early with your humpback whale story. <laughs> but...
1: Yes, I would say that is my number one story. It is the most incredible experience that has ever happened to me. Being that close to a whale is pretty pretty amazing. But if
0: you spend time in the sea, there's more than one story. <laughs>
1: Exactly. So there are plenty more years for more stories to, yeah, to occur. Yeah, come diving in Mozambique, listeners, and you will end up leaving country with a crazy, amazing story to tell everybody. <laughs> Another story, not that I can think of. I guess it would be once again. I was diving, and I was helping collect data for um, one of the research centers which was a really cool opportunity and we saw the angels of the ocean I have to say which are the manta rays gorgeous just like five of them really close and curious and elegant in the water and that was pretty spectacular just to just be really close To them.
0: It's awesome. Very cool. At the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like the audience to take from your episode?
1: Well, I would like the audience to hear from my story that if you can do good and if you're curious about something, you should go forward and do it. If you have the opportunity or are learning about, you know, some sustainable practices or or science that can change the world, learn more about it and see if it can help your community. And if not, just look around at your community and see maybe what can I do to help? And there's always something you can do to help and make the world a better place. But of course, use less plastic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very good points. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and your research, where's the best place to do so?
1: They can contact me via my email on ejvelasquez005 at gmail.com. And yes, I think that's a pretty great place to contact me.
0: Are you on social media at all? No. (laughs) That's fine. Um, I feel like most people your age are. That's why I asked.
1: Well, I am, but I don't have a public account. I do follow a lot of marine science accounts on Instagram, but I don't think, I don't know if it's the best place to contact me because I'm usually never on my, never using social media. So email is the best place to contact me.
0: Sounds good. All right. Well, Emily, this is really fun chatting with you. Thank you for reaching out and thank you for
1: being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I had a fantastic time talking to you and learning more, you know, sharing ideas.
0: Absolutely. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist
1: podcast.